This is Porter Harlem's first Zoom event. We will also turn this into an audio-only podcast that will be available available on your webpage, or I'm sorry, on our webpage, Porter Harlem Podcast, and on seven podcast platforms. My co-host today is my very long-term Porter Harlem contributor, Kenidra Tucker. Hello, Kenidra. Hello. Well, we hope everyone had a chance to uh, watch the episode of Recipe for Change in which we provide it. If not, we will try to share enough of the show to those who saw the show can easily recall the discussions and those who did not can follow. This show gathers celebrities, chefs, activists, and creators around a dinner table for necessary conversation. So let's start ours. So generally, Kenidra, what did you think of the show and which discussion stayed with you the most? And then we'll ask uh, any of the uh, guests or any of our, our, our uh, readers that are, are listening. But let's start off with you, Kenitra. Yes, so thank you for inviting me to the conversation. So I, I enjoyed the conversation. I thought it was very relevant. I thought it was timely. Um, one thing that stood with me the most was our collective experiences as Black women. So in every conversation, there was something I could relate to, whether it was the conversation about natural hair or the conversation about code switching, like trying to change it up so that I can fit into the status quo of white culture, whether it was the conversation about how important my mother is to me, I related to that conversation as well. The conversation about mental health, that really stood out to me because I'm going through some concerns right now in terms of our family has dealt with loss recently. So just trying to handle that and balance work and school and family issues that i that was really a very relevant conversation for what I'm dealing with at the moment. And then the conversation about being a strong black woman, I definitely related to that. <laughs> like, I was wondering. <laughs> I do, I feel like I'm always juggling multiple tasks. And, well, actually, I thought about you on that part. Right, and I just, you know, to hear other women say that sometimes I don't have the strength and it's okay to be vulnerable, I definitely related to that because I don't typically show vulnerability. I just don't. I don't. I try to make make it. I try to keep all my balloons in the air, so to speak. So I definitely related to that conversation, too. Yeah. Um, the part that I, that got me the most was code switching. So it's interesting that you found so many of them, in particular, the part where Tabitha Brown said that she learned from code switching that, quote, me be me, be, me being me wasn't enough. Um, code, uh, code switching meant that I wasn't free. And I thought about um, my own experience of having to learn that that's what, what I was doing or I was encouraged to do or that I did. And I decided that I wouldn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> but at times I do find myself almost slipping into it. And I wonder sometimes we code switch just to fit in uh, or if it's something we're taught that we must do. I'm not too sure which one of the two it is. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's both. I think we learn like Tabitha mentioned that she heard her mom on the phone talking to bill collectors. So she didn't say her mom told her to code switch. What she said was she picked it up because exactly. she saw her mom doing it. And we are products of our environment. Right. So if we see our parent doing something or someone who's close to us growing up as children. We absorb that. And then we say, OK, this must be what I'm doing because this person in my life who's important is doing it. So let me follow suit. So that's what I got from it. Yeah, and that could be it. You might have answered my question, so I don't have to get too much more thought to it. 
Because for me, um, the cold switching I'm thinking of most is when Blacks, including myself, get around non-Blacks, and especially Black, well, Black males and Black females, the voice all of a sudden loses, loses its base. And it's like, why are you losing your base? And then they have to pronounce words a certain way or say the certain words. And it's like, are you trying to be accepted? Or do you think their way of speaking is better? Or, um, you know, what kind of inferiority complex are you dealing with? <laughs> and so I try not to do that. And of course, the reverse sometimes is when you hear whites code switch and start using the word man all the time, especially when guys say that to me, it just makes me cringe. And I'm like, do you talk like that to your white friends? <laughs> No, I agree with you. And I think, um, so I went to a predominantly white college and um, there, were, there was a time where I can recall one particular time where I was the only black person in a class. It was a class of 30 of us and I was the only black person there and it was a psychology class. And I felt the need, I, didn't, I don't wanna say I felt the need, but I felt a certain way about feeling like I represented black people. So I didn't want to, step outside my lane, so to speak. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to say anything that would impact me in a negative way because I felt like me being the only black person in this class, I represent all black people. So I have to be on my P's and Q's. Like right. I have to make sure I've done everything right. I've said everything the way it's supposed to be said because if I don't then, and again, this is something that I, no one said this to me, but it, I felt that way in the class. Like I have to make sure I represent black people appropriately. So. Let me make sure I say everything like I'm supposed to say and I do everything I'm supposed to do in this class. Yeah. So I think that's the expectation that comes with our culture, unfortunately, and just assimilating in a white European society. That's what happens. You feel like sometimes you have to put on so you can be successful. Put on, I like that word. So we have one or two, a couple of, uh, of, of, of uh, readers with us. Do any of you all have anything to say? If you do, just... Unmute yourself and open up. We're listening. I think that everyone does that. They do code switch, whether you're on the job and you have to present a projected image of what a person is expecting, especially if you have customers. A black man being in a clothing store, especially if it's high end, he's not going to talk the same way on the street as he would in a store because he's trying to get customers. What about the Hispanic lady who goes in for a job interview and she's dressed to impress? She doesn't get the long nails because that's associated with Latinas, the long nails with the jeweled ends. So in different aspects, it's not just Blacks, there are other racial groups who participate in code switching. Yeah, I guess code switching is sort of like assimilation or attempt assimilation. Would you say that? Yes. Okay. So maybe we all do that. We all do that. Okay. And I'll add on to that. We, I think we're also to your earlier point too, Wayne, like we are encouraged to do that. And I'll give you an example um, that I can relate to from the video. I was in college and I think we were going to like a, a student conference or something. And I, I've worn my hair natural most of my life. And I had a two strand twist in my hair. And the woman who was in charge of the student diversity, equity, inclusion office, although it was called something different at the time, she was touching my twist and she said, you know, you may want to consider um, changing your hair when you decide to go for a job. Now, mind you, I'm 21 at the time. 
This is the head of the Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion in Higher Education at our college. It's a predominantly white college. And she's telling me that I may want to consider changing my hair in order for me to be successful in the job market. I was done at that point. Like I felt like this isn't okay, but I didn't have the confidence to say anything to her. So right. she was encouraging me to code switch at that time. Exactly. I've had that experience too. So Carol, you want to add anything else? This is Carol Francois, who was speaking earlier, one of our readers. Does Carol, you want to add anything else? We ask if any of our other readers have anything else to say before we move on. No, not really. It's just like I said, I think we all tend to do that given our environments. You have to blend in. You don't want to stand out. Things are associated with certain racial groups. You just want to keep those to the side, especially when you're in an office, especially when you're out and about with different people. You want to blend in. It's not like you're trying to change yourself, but you want to blend in. And you are right. People listen to what you say and how you say it. Exactly. So, Kanidra, you have a question for us or something you want to bring up? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I looked at, the there's a, a list of questions, discussion questions that went along with the video. And I looked at the questions and they were very relevant questions. And one question I had was um, about Court of Harlem and, and the way in which it amplifies Black women's voices and experiences. So for example, we met when I was 17. I'm 39 now. So <laughs> we've, we've been, we, you know, we've talked for 22 years. It's been that reason, long. Yeah, and that's crazy, right? Because you wouldn't, it doesn't feel like it's been that long. But the reason we met is because I wrote an article about Black women and I talked about Destiny's Child, talking about, oh, we're independent. But on the flip side, it's like, can you pay my bills? And it was like a contradiction to me. And I wrote that at 17 and you published it in Port of Harlem. So I felt like that was giving me a voice as a young Black woman. And so one thing I wanted to talk about was how, how does Port of Harlem amplify Black women's perspectives or our voices or our experiences? Wow, that's a deep question because I think you answered it already, that we look for it and uh, we include it and uh, we balance uh, everything that we do or we attempt to. So whenever we have articles or book reviews or guests like yourself, if, we, if it's too testosterone heavy, we stop. <laughs> and we look for a, a more balance. What we've never had that I would love to have is a trans person. I mean, we've had almost every kind of person you can imagine work with us, work for us, but not a trans person yet. So as some people know that our incarcerated person is out of jail now. So that's a new experience for us too, to work with him as a person who was formerly incarcerated. So that's a challenge. It's not a challenge working with him, it's just a new experience, I should say. So um, that's how we balance it. We've always been attempting to be inclusive and diverse. What I do find sometimes we're on Facebook is that black people in particular, but I'll say all people, but you know, our audience is mainly black, but we do have a diverse readership as well, which is good. And that um, even though you find people who feel that they are oppressed, in which they are, that they tend to oppress other people. So sometimes I can be very pro-woman or male feminist and guys will look at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, but why would you think I'm crazy? <laughs> Have you tried to reach out to those who are transgender or making the switch to 
another gender for whatever reason? Have you encouraged that in Port of Harlem? We haven't like we should, but that's our effort now. So we've done more stories on trans people and then include uh, more um, issues related to trans people. Even in this past issue, um, there's a trans actress that uh, I've seen twice now. And uh, she is now competing to be my favorite uh, local actress. And I made that well known largely to make it clear that uh, we're welcoming Paige, but also because I truly do like her. I mean, I've seen her in two different, what I like about local actresses of her, her, her ilk is that you can see them in one play, then see them another and not even know it's them until you look at the credits. And she's been like that. So um, we'll work, that's, that's, that's one of our next tasks. I mean, we have lots of tasks and that's another one. No, I think that's a great question that Carol asked because even in the Recipe for Change episode, I appreciated the diversity sitting at the table. Like I appreciated the fact, I, I didn't know who Angelica Ross was. She identified <laughs> as queer. I did not know. I looked at her hair and I was like, oh, I love her hair and that color on her skin. Then I looked her up and I was like, oh, I didn't know this. And Roxanne Gay, I had heard about her and her work. And so a part of what the episode did for me was it caused me to go look up these women to read more about their experiences. You and, and I saw that. Yeah, so that was that was a plus because I, I I had an inkling that Roxanne Gay might be queer, but I wasn't sure. I wanted to have my facts straight. So I went and looked her up too. And I saw one part that says she had identified as bisexual, but I didn't I saw something else where she was talking from the perspective of a queer woman and she said that's how she did identify. And so I appreciated more perspectives from queer people because I don't, it's becoming more, it, it, you're seeing that more, but I do agree with you that I don't see it everywhere. And that is one place that I wanna learn more about those women and their experiences or those men and their experiences. So I'm, I'm, I appreciate the fact that that is coming to the forefront. Those well, Kanidra, it's so funny you mentioned that because that was exactly what I did. I mean, only people that I knew was Mary J. Bly, Keisha Les Bottoms, and Lynn Whitfield. And I thought mm -hmm. it was an age thing because I said, I don't know the rest of these women at all. Mm -hmm. And so I did have to look them up. And but I heard in the conversation when they mentioned the transgender lady, and I was thinking, oh, that's a deep story. Mm -hmm. You know, how she had to go and protect herself as a twofer, pretty much. And uh, then when I looked her up, I said, oh, that's the lady who they had on The View the other day. I think she was on The View or some other show. And they mm -hmm. spoke, or then maybe in the newspaper. And they spoke of her accomplishments of being, I believe, the first trans person on Broadway to do something or something of that nature. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was good yeah, to actually see her after reading about her. Right. And that's the other thing. Like I, I used to watch Orange is the New Black on Netflix, and that's when I got exposed to Laverne Cox, who's trans. And yeah. that's before, I really know. right. That's and famous. before that, that's it famous. was you say it again. That's famous. <laughs> so before Laverne Cox, it was RuPaul. I don't remember. But I don't think RuPaul is not really trans though. He's, he's drag, right? He dresses in drag. He dresses in drag. Okay. So that's the only, I want to say, experience I had with anything having to do with drag or even the, the trans word, right? Anything having to do with that. Right, I didn't know, right, right. like growing up, all I saw was RuPaul. Right. And so I didn't even, I, I didn't have the knowledge or any information in regards to 
okay, he dresses and dress, that's it. So for more stories to come out now and for more people to be represented and to be able to share their stories is a plus because I'm learning more as I look people up, as I watch television. So I really appreciated her telling her story, Angelica Ross, and as well as Roxanne Gay telling their stories because I, it's just, it wasn't something that I was exposed to growing up. It really wasn't. Right, anybody else want to add anything? Well, you also have to understand there's a stigma as well because people are still associating that person with the gender they were born with. So coming out and saying that they were women when they used to be men and vice versa, it still carries that stigma. So you won't have many people coming forward and admitting they're transgender. And they're also having issues with other people accepting them, especially within their families. And you hear the stories. They don't tell their stories that much because again, they don't know how people are gonna react. Everyone reacts differently to change, no matter how it's presented. And I think that's why their stories are untold. They want to tell their stories, but they fear the reaction to the story. Yeah, I think the key word you said was change. People fear change. And I think that's one thing that I have an issue with a lot of Blacks on Facebook is that they don't realize that they're human and that they fear change or they fear what's the unknown. And they say things and think that is okay. And it's no different than a Trumpster, in my opinion, saying something that's not okay. It's in the same ballpark. But um, I'll tell you, the person that changed my view on those issues uh, in particular, I forgot her name now, but I interviewed her maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the thing that changed me is when, well, my point was that I can understand why a guy would want to become or dress like a girl or woman, because you know you're going to be treated differently and you know women are generally given less or treated with less respect. So why would you want to give up your male privileges, so to speak? Even though I know what the word male privilege meant at that time. But why would they want to give up your male? Why would you want to give up your male privilege? And what she did, what she said that changed me, she said, and my father chased me around the corner from T Street to like U Street and hit me in the head with a hammer. And I was thinking, your father did that? And you know, you still want to be like who you are? Then that must mean you really want to be who you are. And that's a lot to go through. No, that's a good point. Um, I, I'm, I'm an educator by trade. And uh, one of the things that I have been seeing when I was in the classroom, I don't, I'm not in the classroom anymore, but I was from 2006 to 2018, is that we have students, we had a student in kindergarten who did not feel like he was comfortable identifying with being a male. And so I saw it that early and that changed my perspective because I'm like he is saying he's he's outwardly expressing that he does not identify with being male and I was like well, how, like as a parent and he was being raised by his grandparents his grandparents though from from talking to the school counselor they didn't want to accept it and so it made me think about how are our children having to navigate this space where they're trying to figure things out and how how can as educators how can we be more supportive of them and as parents, as, as guardians, how, how can you be more supportive of children when you're seeing that they don't identify a certain way? So that really changed my perspective. So Kanija, uh, mm -hmm. you advised me when you uh, commented on an early version of my review of the show, not to make early reference of how I had to pass through all the hair and the colors 
and the nails, et cetera, of the uh, celebrities at the beginning of the show, just for them to get to the meet. How does your being a diversity, equity, and inclusion educational consultant fit into the advice you gave me? Right. So, yes. So what I, part of what I do in, in being a diversity, equity, inclusion consultant is I have conversations with people about diverse experiences, backgrounds, and people. And what I find is that in order to have those authentic conversations, you have to create a space where people feel welcomed and valued. And if they don't, then they may not share or they may not come back or it's just not a conversation. It's, it's a one-sided conversation. People may not participate. And so what I was saying to you was, if you want people to come to the conversation, the conversation that we're having now, and we comment on their hair and their nails and all those different things, they may not feel welcomed in the conversation. So one thing I have learned in having conversations with people is to always, to the best of my ability, make people feel welcome from the very start. Whether it's the flyer that you send out about the conversation, the words you use to invite them to the conversation, the atmosphere in the conversation virtually in person, is to help people feel welcome, like feel like they have a place to show up as their true self. Now that well, may can, mean- Can we yeah, start it over again? Because Carol, Carol, can we do that start over again? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Now you, you want to stop recording and then let her in? No, I can't stop recording. I just start it over. Okay. So 40 minutes away. We only got about 10 more minutes. So Carol, you're back in again. Thanks a lot. We're going to start off from here. And so <clears throat> we're going to start over again. Here we go. Kanidra, you advised me when you commented on an early version of my review of the show, not to make an early reference to how I had to pass through the hair, the colors, the nails, et cetera, at the beginning of the show to get into the meat of the show. How does your being a diversity, equity, and inclusion educational consultant fit into your advice that you gave to me? Right. So that's a good question. So what I was saying was uh, in your early review of the of the show, the recipe for change show featuring the black women, they had different color hair, they had different nails, eyelashes, all kinds of things, different enhancements. And what I was saying was, if you talk about that in the opening of your review or mention it at all, people who do have those things may not feel welcomed in this conversation. And so one thing I've learned in the educational space as a consultant who talks with people about diversity, equity, inclusion, is that when people don't feel welcome, they don't, they don't come to the conversation or they come and they leave or they don't participate. So they may show up and say nothing. So one thing that I have learned is to be as welcoming as possible. So if someone shows up as they are, whatever they have, nails, makeup, hair, whatever it is, whatever my opinion about it is, is not relevant to them coming to the conversation and feeling like they are accepted and feeling like they're valued in the conversation. So I do my best to put whatever my opinions are to the side to engage people in an authentic conversation. You have to make people feel comfortable in diversity, equity, inclusion spaces because the point sometimes of the conversation is to have an authentic experience, right? I wanna be able to come and show up and say who I am, be who I am, regardless of how you perceive me or what you think. And people will not do that if you turn them off at the outset. No, that made sense. I understood exactly what you said when you said it to me, but I thought it was interesting that you had to tell me 
<laughs> but I wonder if Carol has anything to add. Nothing to add. I think a lot of our conversation took place after the recording this had, and we started talking. But and I agree with you. Um, I think if you start off like that, you're going to turn off a lot of um, readers. Um, they want recipe for change, but they also don't want that stigma associated for that change. Okay. So, Kanija, before we close, do you want to um, bring up the last piece that you wanted to talk about? So, and the only other question that I had really was knowing that Port of Harlem is a media space, so this is a magazine that represents Black voices and perspectives, what are, what are some thoughts about how print and digital media portray Black women? either historically or presently? Like, what do, what do you think about how Black women are portrayed in the media, like I said, from a historical perspective or from a modern day perspective? Um, because the Recipe for a Change video that we watched also talked about the portrayal of Black women, our stories, our experiences. So being that Port of Harlem has been around for a very long time, I don't know how long. Since 1995. Since 1995. So what are your thoughts on the media's portrayal of, of Black women? Well, the basis of my thoughts come from Donald Bogle's book. I think it was called Mammy's Coons, Mulattoes, and Bucks. And it was the first time, and I was uh, maybe uh, about 20 at Iowa State uh, in a very white environment and a very oppressive environment when he made um, his story, he told his story. And there were so many people in the audience that knew that I was a Diana Ross fan, right? So he turned around and made a negative comment about Diana Ross and everybody looked around at me and like, oh, what is Wayne gonna say? And with basically what he said that he, she was like a dark skinned mulatto basically. So black women usually have been portraying these certain things. I think one of them was mulatto and that's the light skinned black woman whose only problem in life is that she just isn't white or she's the mammy where she's the old, overweight black woman who isn't very accepted by anybody except, except for the people in the restaurant to be the cook. And over time, though, Black women have had more um, uh, diverse portrayals. But even today, you can still see remnants of those um, limitations. And that's one reason why I find it very difficult when I hear people, men or women, say negative things, say, about Kamala Harris. I mean, do they understand historically what they're saying about her and how you may feel that way? But how much of your feelings are based on your being, uh, I don't need to brainwash, but you're being conditioned to think that she or some other person will say or behave or act a certain way to be accepted. And I think one of the people that I really admire these days for pushing that issue is um, uh, the lady who ran for president now, of course, right on my head, Hillary Clinton. Because she constantly pushes those issues about how, now if I had done that and you see what I had done, and you compare that against, say, Donald Trump, then you know there's a big issue on how people perceive women versus they perceive men. And lastly, I will say, one reason I love watching reruns of Perry Basin, because they're hilarious at times, because of the way they portray women. They don't mean to be demeaning, but they are. You know, for instance, you just see um, his secretary. She's always the secretary. She doesn't want to be anything else. And then all the secretary is supposed to be cute. And all the secretary is supposed to 
and the aspiration is to be the boss's wife or to be the boss's mistress. I mean, it's continual. And the women are always the murderers, or not always, but too often the murderers. And why do they murder a man? Over a man. I mean, it's just like, it is so continuous. The thought process and the images are so continuous. You can see why people are still messed up to this day. They don't know how to, how to uh, approach a woman that isn't in those positions. You can see it. It's, grain, it's, it's, ingrain, it's uh, ingrained into the way we see things and what we see. No, that's a good point. I appreciate those perspectives. Carol, did you have any comments about the portrayal of Black women in the media today or historically? Women, all women across the board have been portrayed based on the mores of the time. Wayne, you made a comment how women were portrayed on Perry Mason. You also had to understand that in some of the I Love Lucy shows, they were still sleeping in separate beds even though they were married. Right. So, and again, they were trying to keep the viewers interested in the shows. They were trying to bring more viewers to watch those shows because certain things were taboo. They didn't want to show Lucy being pregnant on the show. Every so often you would see her with the maternity wear, but you know, it's not like it is now where everyone wants to show their stomach and show whatever but they were very careful during that time because of the censors and they didn't want to get the fines from the, the networks that they were dealing with. So that had a lot to do with it too. Um, the actresses put up with that behavior because they knew that was their only way to be on TV or be over the radio or be in the movies. Nowadays, actresses have more say in their contracts of what they can and cannot do. Whereas back in the day, they didn't have that option especially women. They put up with what they had to in order to make a paycheck. If you listen to Debbie Reynolds when she, when she was alive and she talked about how they treated her at MGM, she couldn't really tell them that she was pregnant. She was jumping out of windows and jumping into carts and doing her own stunts, but she was doing it so she could make a paycheck. And at that time, not to get too involved in her personal history, she was going through a divorce and she had kids. You do what you have to do given what you have. Saying all that with Black women, and especially Black women who were actresses and Black men who were actors, they did what they had to do to make a paycheck. Now, I like the fact that Sidney Poitier and some other actors did not want to do that stereotype. They did not, they did not want to play those kind of roles. If any roles they did play depicted strong men who overcame whatever obstacles and ended up on top, or they ended up getting whatever they wanted with some sad results, but they embrace that. You play the role that what you're given. It's up to you, and I agree with you. It's up to you whether you take the role or not, but people were doing what they had to do at the time to make a paycheck. But do you see, those, do you see the remnants of those thoughts with us right now? Yes. Um, you have some actresses who tell you that they had to play certain roles to get their foot in the door. Now that they have control and now some of them have star power, yes, they can kind of pick and choose what they want to do. Well, I'm saying and, even, I'm talking about in other parts of life, to say political life. But yes, that, that I mean, even now, in I the office. People find the way Hillary laughs or what she's, what she's wearing or what the, what the first vice president, how she says something. Like, like those things are important. No one asks, you know, what Biden is wearing and how he laughs or doesn't laugh. Things of that nature that 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 says that something is not 
that she's being judged in a way that she wouldn't be judged if she was just a human. Well, that's the thing. She's always going to be looked at not just as a woman, but a strong woman. And if you are in a political arena where you are running for an office, all sorts of things are going to come out. She made a comment about her wearing pantsuits recently. She used to wear um, dress suits all the time at one point. And she stopped doing it because the media focused in on one particular moment in time where um, there was an outline of her underwear. She just stopped wearing it. And she said that was the reason. It was just a turn off for her to wear dress suits. But getting back to your question, yes, people are going to come after you, especially if you're a strong woman, because they don't expect that kind of behavior from a woman. A man coming off strong like that, they're not going to say anything. When a woman comes off strong like that, she's aggressive, she's angry, she's this, she's that. So there's so much stigma with a woman standing up for herself. And Hillary was that type of woman who made a stand. She was on the issues. She was in positions of power, being secretary of state. She was a senator. She was a first lady. So naturally, people don't come after her. She just happened to have an opponent who hit below the belt. And people weren't expecting that. When we had political debates, it was basically a gentleman's thing where you talked about the issues, you knew how to do wordplay so that you can get the worst response from your opponent. But when Donald Trump started campaigning, we had this wide range of double dealing by him. He went below the belt talking about a lot of things that were buried, so to speak. And he brought those up and he kept bringing them up, trying to get that reaction out of okay, her. Okay, but do you think that the way to end that is for the people themselves to reject it? So for instance, in Port of Harlem, we don't play that. No, you don't. I mean, it's very so, well balanced. So, we make, so, you, so, so you see that a lot of the women at, at our magazine speak and they speak the way they choose to speak. We don't make that decision for them. No, but not all publications are like that. You just happen to be like that. There are publications, I'm not going to name them, but you're familiar with them. There are a lot of publications who try to censor their female writers. Female writers, we go for the emotion. We tend to tell it like it is. And there are some male publishers who see that and want to clamp down on that. You don't do that. You want the bare meat bones of everything that we feel, what we see, what we experience. That's what sets it apart from other publications. Now, if you ask other writers, I mean, they deal with it. Like I said before, you want a job, especially if it's a prestigious medium you want to write for, then you're going to deal the way you want to deal until you get to a situation where you don't have to deal with them anymore and you move on. But you don't forget the lesson that you learned. You just learn to deal with it. Okay. So in our last two minutes, Kanita, you want to close this out? Or do you want me to close this out? Well, no, you can close this out. I, just, I do appreciate the conversation. And I think that... It, this is what how we learn or this is how I learn. I can speak for myself in having these kind of conversations. So I appreciate you asking me to view the video because I probably wouldn't have seen it. Um, but now I'm more interested in the other conversations that Recipe for Change has. And I love the fact that they had discussion questions because I believe in conversations, dialogue. I think that's one way we change the world is we have conversations and we disagree. That's the other thing. Like it's okay for everyone not to agree on the same topics, but to continue to talk through it is important. So I, I appreciated the conversation. I hope we'll have more conversation. Um, and if we do, I'm always open to discuss. Well, I appreciate both of you all time and all the other people who didn't participate. Um, 
vocally, at least you uh, heard us, and that you're going to hopefully share this video and please subscribe to Port of Harlem Magazine. The magazine is still free at portofharlem.net. So I want to thank everybody for paying attention, for listening, and have a great life <laughs> or great evening. We still want to see you tomorrow. All right. Well, take thank care. you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.